So Apple started a clothing line for pirates. Yeah. Their best seller so far is the eye patch. Get off the internet. I got to get the damn internet shut off right now. I'm Rob. And I'm Marty. And welcome to Tradesplaining, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. In episode 52, we will talk about why trade is tanking. Thanks, Thanks China. China. Thank you. Why the Wild West may be over in the digital industry. And of course, Switzerland's newest threat, giant carp. Later, we'll talk to Anne Catherine Zotz and Caroline Forrester of the White Label Project on what it means to run a truly sustainable e-commerce business, and of course, where to get Geneva's best fast food. And I think we'll try to throw in a few jokes, despite the heat, some listener feedback, and sneak in a news roundup or two. So without further ado, let's get into it. (laughs) Sweat responsibly, folks. Sweat. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 52. We are very happy to be back on such short notice after our prolonged summer break. So now we've got back-to-back episodes and we're excited to bring them to you. Listeners will be happy to know that 52 is the atomic number of tellurium. If you're wondering what that is, let me tell you. What's tellurium? It's a brittle, mildly toxic, rare silver white metalloid. And no, I'm not describing Jordan Peterson. <laughs> we had some good points early. Anyway, that's not important. We know this is just a, a sequitur into the introduction. A sequitur. Sequitur. Yes. Number 52 is also in numerology carries vibrations of new beginnings, good fortune, and positive change. Anything happened recently in your which life? Which for me resonates quite a bit because yeah. Leah, the world. And I have to mention also that listeners are listening. People who I didn't know and I haven't spoken to in probably a couple of years, maybe before COVID, have been reaching out to me on different channels saying, congrats on your... your They've had to admit they're listening. Yeah. And that's usually the first thing, congrats. And the second one is, yes, I listen. Yes, I listen. (laughs) We had one listener from Germany write to us. Uh, She's at GIZ. I was actually surprised that she listens because we know her, but she listens to the podcast. It's great. She loves it. She said lots of her colleagues listen to it as well, although they don't get your jokes. I wasn't sure if she was saying yours and mine and yours. yours. Or mine. I got yours from that. In response to this and try to be listener sensitive, we're going to try to throw in as many references to Multiculti and the Scorpions during this podcast as I can to see if... I think also in the interest of intercultural... Angela uh, Merkel. In the interest of intercultural communication, we're also bringing back the UN word of the day. Yeah, we are. So it's making its grand comeback, much like Donald Trump's presidential campaign. (laughs) It's coming back. (laughs) So it's a good thing, folks, if you didn't get that. So it is a good thing. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you catch our future episodes. Better yet, you can also share it with a friend or a stranger. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts. Anywhere. So subscribe to all of them and do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. They do help, do make a difference. And we know many of you are listening more and more than we thought each day, actually. So do what I said and... Just do it. Just just do it. Smash that. Nike's going to sue us for that. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to come in here, Artie. We like to keep the podcast light. And everybody knows it's a good podcast. Maybe you have tooth pains, stuff like that. But there's been a really important notification from the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S. Some of you may have your turtle near you. Stop kissing and snuggling your small turtle. It does seem to be the source of a salmonella outbreak. So I know many of you have turtles. Many of you maybe you like to listen to the podcast. You like to have the turtle near you. Don't eat or drink near your small turtle because this could cause even hospitalization. The good news is it's quite easy to run away from the turtle because you'll see him coming pretty slowly at you. In the interest of it is holiday season for a lot of us in the Northern Hemisphere. Some of you may be in Italy, 
I know you you enjoy Italy. You will not, as we know, be able to enjoy Domino's in Italy. But also those of you who enjoy Russia, Domino's is now finally leaving Russia. I think we do get a few listeners from there. This is big. Domino's is leaving Russia? Yeah. There's been a lot of stuff. I know a lot of consultancies left Russia. I know McDonald's left. This is Domino's. That's how you know sanctions are working. (laughs) (laughs) Trade is fragmenting. It is trading services, by the way. It's a franchise. Let's get out of here before my plane suddenly crashes. (laughs) So then, jumping right into this episode's news stories. First one up is Rob's favorite relates to China and the fact that trade seems to be going down, or at least in the goods part of the economy. So longer term, the outlook for global trade is taking quite a big hit as major economies push to reorder supply chains and bring in a bigger slice of manufacturing and investment back home, also de-risking, which we'll get to later. Wink, wink. Some economists now see global trade growing more slowly in the years ahead than the global economy, which is a reversal of a years-long trend that was a hallmark of what we saw as deepening economic integration. And generally a good thing. So exports have gone down, double-digit amounts for China, Vietnam, and Taiwan, among others. So these are big exporting hubs, particularly the first two. In China, this is driven by a slump in demand, and it's showing up in balance sheets of companies, for example, like Estee Lauder, who's reported lower than expected results, primarily due to what they call soft China demand. I always like that phrase, soft, soft demand. demand. There's downward pressure on upward demand. I have soft demand for a diet. <laughs> So Bloomberg has argued that this is not a short-term trend, but a purported policy of G's government to break the addiction of debt fueled on real estate, which we have been talking about, I think it was at least the last three years. 2020 first. (laughs) Yeah, we did. Yeah, Yeah, we did. Evergrande. Yeah, this is why we've seen daily reports of real estate companies going under, for example, Evergrande, as Rob said. The question is, with trade tanking, what does that mean for global growth? Yeah. The question is, is it global growth? Is trade leading or is trade a lagging indicator? So I think we know many economies, US, Europe, and many have been also following raising interest rates, trying to reduce demand. It's happening. And China is having other pressures, even deflationary pressures. So it's gotten to a certain point with them where it's maybe even gone beyond just slowing economic activity. So this is now to a point where we do see it over three or four months significant reduction in exports. And you remember that these exports had exploded post-COVID and even they were radiating a little bit outside China, places like Vietnam were doing well. So I think we are now seeing the effects. Is it going to be a slowdown? Is it actually going to be a recession? That's, But it's going to be the story. I think it's going to be the story. It is durable, as Bloomberg said. Maybe the U.S. can print its own money, but That's nobody the, else can. I think, yes, all of that is correct, but I'm not sure if it's if goods trade tells the whole story. So it's also important to focus on the services sector, which accounts for a growing and growing portion of trade. Now, goods, some say, has sort of is plateauing or slowing down. It's not growing at the levels we've come to see over the last 20 years, but services trade seems to be picking up. The problem with that is that it's much more difficult to quantify. So for economists to say, we traded X number and X number of dollars in McKinsey consultants last year, or whatever it may be, or BPO process outsourcing, things like that. So it's important to consider that when we're looking at these sort of I don't call it doomsday, but an early warning indicator of things that may be coming down the pike. And I think that's a good segue to the next bit we want to talk about, and that's on digital trade, which is an important facet of this rise in services trade. And that is the fact that digital trade is facing more and more regulation, which I guess some would say is a good thing. So it seems an era is ending. So up to 2021, digital services and much of digital-enabled trade has been lightly taxed, with companies locating in lower tax jurisdictions like Donald Trump. In many ways, the tech has also been very... Remember the rare. Ireland, was it the reverse Irish sandwich or whatever? It put Microsoft in Ireland. It was the Dutch Irish sandwich. That's the one. I'm actually low-key happy that 
he's running again because now we can we have an excuse to make more jokes. So exactly. It's been a bit of a pause, a yeah. bit of a desert. That's why the podcast has gotten less funny all the time. <laughs> if anybody were wondering. <laughs> <laughs> so as I said, you'll remember that the EU has began a change in this regulation movement when they imposed new taxes on major U.S. tech companies like Meta and Google. Countries like France and Italy started to impose punitive restrictions themselves on an individual basis. The OECD thankfully negotiated a settlement to reallocate a lot of that money and corporate profits to address this and stop proliferation of taxes, which was seen as counter to the modern digital trade, so free flow and things like that. And then, of course, implementation has been delayed, and now the Canadians are weighing in. With Not this. again the Canadians. You remember the forest it's fires? It's always the Canadians. Now, well, first it's the pollution, and now this. They're either sending pollution and smoke or taxes. And so they're weighing in with a 3% tax on, or potential 3% tax on digital revenue which hits Canadians. So anything that Google is seen to be selling across border will be hit with a 3% tax. So this is almost certain to end in a trade dispute, another one. Regulation also seems to be rising with GDPR. So this is building on GDPR, I should say. And now more sets of new EU regulations are looking to police content and ensure what they call fairer competition. So it seems on the face of it, this era of Wild West is ending, at least in the larger economy. So what it'll mean for consumers, I think, remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah. I do think there's something happening here. So GDPR was, this is just a data protection, but it, it did already make a big impact. It's a great name. We knew, we, it sounds like a, some kind of North Korean Republic. Almost actually. as good as IRA. <laughs> then we saw, we know this has been unregulated. And we had these big conversations in the U.S. about what is it called? Section 301 or something yeah. where the platforms can't be held responsible for their content. There's a lot of pressure on that. And then globally... They've blown through that, and they're now trying to police content. And we know in in Canada, they've already done this, and Meta has actually withdrawn. Section 230. 230, yeah. So Meta has actually withdrawn news feeds, and this has been an issue during the fires. In Australia. So it's starting in Australia. You remember this was an issue that was on and again and off again. It's hard enough to get information down there because they're on the end of the world. It's really fun. Do you know the toilet seat? Plus <laughs> really That's far. stupid thing. It'll be a different one. Then there's also, even in the U.S., they've been looking to ensure competition. So we know Google was in trouble for putting their own results first, Amazon the same, and the EU regulations now are pushing this. And we know EU is often a leader in regulation because they like to regulate everything, everywhere, all the time. They'll probably win an Oscar. The, the, the Wild West is over. Now, what's the implication? Is this, a lot of people said doomsday, and of course, Zuck is out there saying you're not going to be able to get your whatever, your cat. belly fat cat photos reduction ads the way you like them. I don't think we really know yet. We know it's been unregulated. It's been completely open. And we know this has been to the advantage of the U.S. platforms. So it, people see this as a way to democratize things. But uh, I think it's yet to be seen if this is going to be a negative for consumers. I think it's a natural outcome in terms of the timeline. It's difficult for anybody to tell you whether that'll happen in the next one, two, five, or 10 years. But I think it's a, just a natural outcome for a segment of trade, which is, I guess, relatively speaking, in its infancy. Now it's sort of becoming a teenager. And now is when sort of the rules start to solidify or crystallize. And now you're seeing, we've talked about this ad nauseum, how the EU and the US and other jurisdictions are sort of staking out claims to what the future tax policy for this, another round in this negotiation, if you can call it that. What is a negotiation? You can probably negotiate now is car prices. So yeah. you can negotiate that deal. At the, it, the auto more dealer. and more. Because yeah. it seems that the auto industry seems to be hitting a speed bump. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Shut up and drive. Is, is it weird that I'm laughing at my own jokes? <laughs> it's, you got to on a podcast. There's no audience out there. Yeah, they told us laugh more. Yeah, we and the Jazz Ed guys are not laughing. They no. don't get it. They're no. not getting it. Audi, Mercedes, <laughs> BMW. 
Farfig nougat. Absolutely not funny. Farfig, that's a fig biscuit. You yeah, know that? not funny. Farfig. Far from Puken. Remember that 90s teacher? Bayern Munich. <laughs> München, sorry. Anyway, so the global art industry we seems to be... We are multicultural, folks. Multicultural. That comes through there. Thank but you. Yeah, thank Angela you. Merkel. Merkel. More Merkel. <laughs> the, cool. so the art industry seems to be hitting hard times, like me getting this news bit out of the way. But early in the pandemic seemed to have rebounded, especially after it, I should say, with sales recovering to pre-pandemic levels and actually surpassing them. Consumers are obviously also trading up more and more because why not? And then, however, with supply constrained at the time due to chip shortages and other things, Prices were also creeping up Bounding quite a bit, up. like watches. <laughs> and the average consumer <laughs> back is, to watches. <laughs> the average consumer is buying more and more expensive models now. However, with interest rates rising, car loans are getting more expensive, as if they weren't already. And it means Americans are having a harder time paying for their car. And not just Americans, I should say, but also global consumers as well. A correction may be in order, so this could be a canary in the cold mine for that, among other things that we've talked about for that post. COVID economic sugar rush we saw in many different areas. Whether that's the case remains to be seen. I think the Wall Street Journal has said that the U.S. industrial policy is favoring EVs. It also may be coming just at the time when demand is softening. And it may Remember softening demand. Yeah, that's my favorite after <laughs> upward pressures. <laughs> Downward pressure on upward prices. <laughs> it may mimic the Chinese industry. So again, we're seeing all this talk about subsidies and trade disputes. We're seeing that the EU is mimicking China in sort of the way they're going about the subsidizing different industries, particularly auto industries. However, these softening demand, as Rob likes to call it, the labor unions are looking for more pay. Seems at the wrong time. We saw that UPS and the Hollywood writers, when it comes to labor action, timing is everything, as I said. However, can't be good news for the industry if workers are asking for more money just at the time when prices are going down. Yeah, maybe there are many signs of slowing economic activity, but a lot of different consumer brands have been inching up in categories. Back to watches Yes, is a good example, but what we're reading now is that the average, I think, American car is up above $50,000. The average car payment is in the $750-$800 range with rising interest rates. So we're seeing, we're reaping a little bit the harvest of this thing. It's probably not sustainable. Probably the U.S. isn't the only one, but they're often out ahead in terms of growing consumer debt. And we're going to see lower demand on the auto industry, which is going to lead to lower production and lower economic output. So the United Auto Workers have decided to put pressure now. I think the timing isn't great. UPS, the timing was good because there's a shortage of drivers. And we saw with the Hollywood writers, the timing potentially is terrible. It's never a good time to be it's an never actor. never a good time. Just don't be a, or writer. a writer. Just don't be a writer, folks. I think it is a bit of a canary in the coal mine in the sense that when defaults are going up, it's something that Americans do spend a big portion of their budget on because they are driving everywhere. And I realize this whenever I go back home, that I'm in a car the majority of the day when I'm going somewhere. I'm not. Lots of cup holders. Too. Lots and lots of cup holders. Yeah. My wife said that she thought that was like the coolest thing about the U.S. when she was growing up. You have your keys and your bagel and in your car. I'm like, yeah, because you have no time to sit down and eat it. <laughs> you get to know people by the back of their head. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it is a bit of a, this, as I said, this canary in a coal mine. It remains to be seen if we'll see these delinquencies keep creeping up, whether that portends to more bad things on the horizon. We'll see. In terms of bad things on the horizon, stay tuned for next week when we'll talk about chip manufacturing in the U.S. Yeah, not Doritos. <laughs> Computer chips or potato chips, there's no difference. Thanks, Clinton. I feel like I'm allowed to make more dad jokes now because I am, in fact, a dad. You're a dad. Yeah. Yeah. Ba-boom. I've got a dad joke for you, actually. Why did the bald guy get tattoos of rabbits on his head? I don't know. Because from a distance, they look like hairs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Look 
White Label Project is a digital concept store for the most exciting female-led impact brands in fashion and design from around the globe. White Label Project was founded by Anne Catherine Zotz and Caroline Forster in 2019 to empower women through e-commerce and deconstruct unsustainable norms in international trade, such as white labeling. My old job. Anne Catherine Zotz is a development economist, former colleague, an entrepreneur with a decade of experience in championing green and ethical trade with the United Nations. And champagne. And her special focus, elegantly merging sustainable fashion and design with economics, powering small and medium enterprises worldwide. Worldwide, it's big. Carolyn Forrester is a brand strategist and entrepreneur with a decade of consulting experience from top agencies around Europe. She's been the creative spark behind international consumer brands, nonprofits, and tech startups from Stockholm, very nice place, to London, and even Berlin. She curates, and I do use that word advisedly, brand narratives at her own consultancy, Studio Forrester. This interview was recorded a few weeks ago separately, so you may notice a slight difference in sound quality. Or not. If you don't, then just forget you heard this. So, Anne Catherine, Caroline, welcome to the program. Very good to have you. We're looking forward to hearing about your entrepreneurial journey and how you got to this place. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about that journey? What brought you to trade and what brought you to the white label idea? So, I came into trade because of like my own journey at the UN. So, I started off like in Chile, worked a bit on logistics actually and transport in trade. So, that was like very far away from where we are now. And because of that, I ended up working at the International Trade Center. So that was then very much like 100% trade and not even like only associate, but really, yeah, hardcore. Stopping all of that, obviously. Yeah, exactly. But already there working on any topics related to sustainability, especially environmental sustainability. So that gave me a lot of thinking what goes wrong in this world. Actually, a lot of frustration also, I think, like around how much is commoditized. So you think always of the typical like coffee, tea, chocolate, like oh, cocoa. Yeah. that's like the typical. But then you go a bit deeper and you like everything else as well, like when it comes to clothing. And yeah, so from that frustration, like how everything works and how we try to make big traders or like big companies more and more sustainable and the work we did working with, of course, SMEs around the globe, but still having, let's say, a small impact when it comes to these large brands and retailers. And at the same time, perhaps having the observation that there's so many cool projects out there, small entrepreneurs really want to change it and have like sustainability embedded in their DNA from the very beginning, um, but completely overshadowed by these large commodity markets. Yeah. So with that, I sat down with Caroline one day, one night after another frustrating <laughs> conference it was a Shea conference in London and okay. it was big traders were there and that was really frustrating. And then we talked about it and Caroline came from another perspective. She is a brand strategist. So she also had worked with the big guys on selling their products. <laughs> so pushing it on people, it can be also very frustrating. Exactly. So bringing both of our perspectives from the development world and the brand marketing world together was like, why don't we join forces and think how all our knowledge, our experience can be brought together and turning into something good. <laughs> yeah, tell, how did you get to the same place? As Anna already mentioned, I started my career as a brand strategist and did a lot of customer insight analysis and also brand strategies for a lot of big global brands, also within the food sector a lot, but also some other industries. And also worked in tech for some time, a bit more like service design, so really big guys in many different areas. And as similar to Anne, even though like in a completely different context, I also got very frustrated because I spent a lot of time helping big companies, making them feel more sustainable to 
towards end customers and spending a lot of money or helping them getting more revenue by sometimes also pretending to be more sustainable than they are and being very frustrated by that. And I felt like there are so many cool initiatives out there. I wasn't even aware of the ones that Anne was seeing at that time. But in my kind of circumference, I was seeing all these cool initiatives that are out there that I would like to work with and help to grow. And also felt that if we would put all the resources and energy that we have to help them, probably the dynamics would shift quite a lot in the world. And when I met Anne, we know each other since way back. We studied together. We kept in touch, even though we lived in like even different continents at that point of time. But when we met then and she started to talk about her frustrations and I about mine, we could directly see that if we put our heads together, also with the different perspectives from like private industry and the public sector, what we could do with that and hopefully create something that brings value in many different ways. Okay, we're going to come back to giving up a salary and how that felt and the whole entrepreneurial (laughs) journey. You guys didn't mention that one. That would be the first thing that would maybe stop me. But let's start from the basis. So we hear a lot about sustainable trade. We hear a lot about sustainable fashion, even sustainable consumption. So what does it mean? We got a lot of listeners, some of whom are more sophisticated in trade, more like you and I and Catherine, some who are more private sector oriented. But to you two, what does it mean sustainable trade? What does it mean sustainable, let's say, fashion in this case? Yeah, I think what is important for us that it's not only social and environmental sustainability that's given for us. Any company, any brand we feature on White Label Project, we can say it's socially and environmentally sustainable, but it's also economic sustainability. And that is something which is sometimes overlooked and it's at the same time essential. So It's like a real issue. So we really need to have platforms which actually enable companies to sell their products. If this doesn't exist and we only help them communicate their story better, position themselves better, it's all nice. But at the end, Robert yourself also, it's so hard to sell to those desired markets in the global north that you need to have enabling systems to do. And that was very important for us so that we really have all these three dimensions of sustainability represented in what we do at White Label Project. So social, environmental, but also economic sustainability so that we really help business to sell their products, to have more income and to grow themselves as a business. But maybe to Caroline, so this is a very noisy market. There's an incredible number of choices for folks like me, for you two as well, to buy. And story is nice, but of course we buy based on price, based on quality, based on taste and so on. So if economic was part of this and helping them sell, how do you create space in that very noisy market? Yeah, it definitely is a noisy market and it is difficult, but I think it really comes down to brand building in the end. First of all, of course, the platform itself to be visible in the right context for the customers to find the platform, but then also especially for our brands to be visible as brands. We see in many cases, and I think that's also one of the key thoughts or principles behind White Labor Project, that we saw a lot of businesses that position themselves as artisans or crafters. And yes, there are a lot of artists and crafters behind each company, but we need to start talking about brands to also become real competitors to other brands that are very clear on who they are, like in their identity as a company. And I think if you're a brand, you can create a real connection to the end customer, which is again, also what really can create value for you over time. Because once a customer learns about you and your brand and your story, they can keep on buying, they can create a relationship with you as a brand. And now we have 35 plus brands, also women-led brands, really cool brands with amazing stories, really great products. And that power together, which is also one of our core ideas, like the community of these great brands, that of course has the potential to reach quite far 
if we all help each other out in creating that noise. And if we join forces, we can become a proper option against more bigger, unsustainable options. How do we know things are sustainable? I think this is the consumers, myself, even in the business. How do we know something is sustainable? And often we know certifications are about paperwork at a certain given time, but may not tell us a lot about the performance of the company or yeah, build that connection. So we see a label on something. So is it because you know the brands, you know, they're sustainable? Is it because they're certified? What do you tell your consumer about them that gives them reassurance that this is a sustainable product? That's a very good question because none of the companies we work with is certified. Certification at their size doesn't really work because they wouldn't have the cash to pay for it. And there would be not so much to certify. So some are really like one, two women shops. And then literally the certifier would come to their home perhaps or so that is like the scenario it works more for larger companies for factories for example that certification works really well and i think to reinsure also larger retailers when they make large purchases like mass orders it's a good thing but it doesn't work really for the smallest in the chain and what we do we have a quite direct communication with them we understand for example critical case is when they work with indigenous communities or marginalized groups and what is very important for us is that they don't go into a community unaccompanied, that they always would work with a local NGO who then again has a larger, let's say, a project or work with a community. So it's a part of its income generation, but the other one might be like around nutrition or women empowerment inside the communities. And that gives us a lot of reassurance. So it's third party, you could say certification or verification, especially when it comes to a very critical point, like engaging with the poor communities. And the other one is around the sustainability of the materials they use. So what we look at is that the Products are made from recycled or upcycled materials or from natural fibers, which are then again biodegradable. And like that in combination with the social sustainability aspects gives us then a fuller picture on what is happening. As we see, you know, what we've described as tsunami of regulation coming from the EU. You guys are based in Germany, I think. So you're in the EU. Is it We're based so in Sweden, but also yeah. in the EU? Yeah. Yep. So you're facing a little bit this kind of regulatory wave that's coming. I know smaller companies are in some ways accepted from it, but in some ways not. So the, the question is, what do you think is the formula to take the good things you're doing and have that impact and scale? And I guess in a secondary question, do you think this regulatory push by the EU, can that be helpful to folks like you who want to see this transition? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think 100% it's beneficial for us. It's good because it's also dismantling those who are having really bad business practices. It sets them under pressure to improve, but it also sensitizes the general public that there's something wrong and they look perhaps for other options because they think perhaps these big guys will never make it or they will see certain companies perhaps being fined and it happens more and more. So I think it's a very good push for us to have more people sensitized to those regulations coming in. We are not scared of those. This is like perfect scenario. We are compliant already. That is no issue. And to create scale, what we see is that we have to communicate and position the brands in every possible way and larger platform we can reach the general public with. And that is why we are investing a lot into, let's say, channels like Instagram, but also on LinkedIn, and then also going into larger media platforms. That's the way forward. Anything we do at the moment is really like focusing on how to reach the end customer and generate their more noise. So from the consumer side, Caroline, we've seen some signs of a flattening of demand for sustainable products because of price sensitivity, inflation, 
purchasing power, and I'm speaking particularly of Europe. Switzerland hasn't been as affected, but we see this in Europe, in France, and also some signs in Germany. I'm assuming you guys are at a price point that's not the cheapest. So do you see any softening of demand? Will that be an issue for sustainable products? I think the key is actually to talk about desirability. I think at the same time as we see like the flattening of some, like for instance, for a sustainable product, we also see an ex extreme increase for luxury products. So obviously there is money out there. And I think this whole social media craze, which only grown throughout the pandemic, has even more pushed people to buy desirable products that they can show off. So I think what we need to do, and which we're also working on, is to create that desirability for sustainable products. And also, first of all, talk about more what it is beyond being sustainable, like the storytelling as a whole. So... I think you're absolutely right. In fact, on the podcast, we've been talking a lot about this kind of rise in prices and rise in segments in a lot of areas. Artie in particular is obsessed with watches, even plastic watches, but it's not the only area. We've seen the same thing in tourism, the same thing in a lot of products. So I think it is interesting in a sense that, and part of that package really is this relationship with producers, relationship with ideally sustainability. Of course, some consumers are way beyond it. You may be aware the hard of this podcast is scientific. So we do ask a series of questions. We're very analytical in this. So the first one we ask as an expat, what did you learn when you looked back at your home country? What stood out to you? I have an example. So for me, it's like double. I'm half Swedish, half German. So I have two home countries that I've learned a lot about when I lived abroad and in many different places. And one thing, especially about Germans that I learned, and I think everybody knows they like to disagree and fight. But then when I moved back to Sweden, which is a very consensus-driven country, I think I started to really appreciate Germany for that fact. There's this concept called in German Streitgespräch. It means disagreement conversation. And that's something that can be published in a magazine or a newspaper or something like that of two people with opposing opinions and just like really enjoying the fight. I think that's really cool because it also really shows a level of tolerance that I was not aware of when I lived in Germany as a child, especially. What I learned is Germans lead with the negative. And that's yeah. what I always thought was different from, <laughs> at least from Americans. We always lead with the positive, the negatives in the middle and with the positive. Germans, even if things are great, lead with the negative. But that's the hook. And Catherine, I know you've lived in South America as well as in... Switzerland, what struck you about being <laughs> I actually think now much more things have become apparent to me living again in Germany. For me, that was a cultural shock, no? Coming back after 14, 15 years to Germany and also seeing my husband actually navigating the Germans, kind of his eye-opening, yeah? The poor guy is really suffering here. It's definitely not a thing I miss. You pass a person and the person makes space for you and you don't even get to the point where you say thank you and they say, bitte schön. You're welcome. <laughs> and that can happen nonstop to you. It's aggressive. aggressive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that is like the little things. It's in the detail, which makes me wonder, or perhaps also explains why I really never missed Germany in the 14 years. <laughs> you can tell probably Artie and I are very stylish humans, but not in the same level. So first of all, which piece from your collection would you recommend for each of us? And yeah. what was cooler? Yeah, we would have said you, but now I look at his picture and I think... <laughs> <laughs> looks amazing. We really had a thought and we thought you both would look so cool in an upcycled suit by Emeka. It's sourced from like fabrics, which are usually used for curtains or upholstery. Mm. Yeah. I think you both would look really handsome in that. Yeah. Yeah. They're very cool. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll take that. We'll take that. Yeah. We'll edit this. So when you said I thought it would have been you, we'll just stick with that. Yeah. 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 Sure. The thing about Artie, we'll just edit that one out. <laughs> so... 
on a scale of zero to Martha Stewart, how likely is White Label Project to start selling lifestyle books and or stock tips? Are you going in that direction? Stock tips, for sure. I, I had to learn about Martha Stewart. I never knew she was imprisoned. So I was just shocked to this lady. It's there like are a lot of surprises. steps Anne, that you need to go through until you get there. Yeah, exactly. There's a progression. You yeah. go to prison, obviously, but you get out. So that's yeah. good. Yeah. And then you relaunch yeah. the career. Absolutely. It's a journey, as yeah, we call yeah, sure. it. Yeah. So maybe I'll start with you, Caroline. I'm sure you've been here. As we have a national food here, it's kebab. And so we have to ask each of our guests, what is your favorite kebab in Geneva? And if you don't immediately remember, it's probably Parfum de Beirut. And what's your best experience with no, Beirut? No. You cannot ask a German or even a half German about kebab in Geneva. Kebab is from Berlin. The best kebab you will only find in Germany. So in Berlin, where's the best kebab? For those of us who will luckily get to travel there, where's the best kebab in Berlin? I've had one at the station. I don't uh, think that was the best one. It was only two euros. So this was obviously a very okay. good deal, very inexpensive. But where's oh. the best kebab in Berlin? There are several, no? I think any in Kreuzberg would be very nice. Yeah. I think any area has their, yes. I think there's so many. Yeah, uh, Not the train station. That was a really bad pick, I think. Uh, you never should have. Very good. I think that's going to bring us to a close on the interviews. Thank you very much, both of you, for sharing uh, your experience on White Label and talking to us a bit about sustainability and so on. If people want to learn more, if they want to buy the good stuff, where would they go? To www.whitelabel-project.com. Whitelabel-project.com, is it? Yes, exactly. Or follow us on Instagram, yeah, just yeah. White Labor Project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, did, I never figured out Instagram. I, I know okay. it's going to happen, though. I really <laughs> feel like it's going to happen. For you guys, this is going to be different. Yeah, no, of course. And we are also on LinkedIn. Find that's the there. one. That's where I saw it. Yeah, yeah. that's how boring I am. No, uh, that's fine. Not your, not your target. <laughs> not your target audience. Thanks again, guys, for coming out. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So, Artie, this is really a super auspicious moment. This marks the return of our famous UN Word of the Day segment, where we break down those pesky buzzwords so you don't have to. Lately, we've been hearing a lot about one concept in particular. All of you will immediately align to this, de-risking. So we've been doing a lot of de-risking for China, de-risking in other ways. Tell us, Artie, what does that mean to you? That's when I look for other potential co-hosts, just in case you're not. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, that's not. Of course, that's no, not no, the case. No, I'm not. not. Don't ask why my phone is... It's blowing up. Yeah, actually. no, it's not. So in a broad sense, de-risking entails mitigating the vulnerabilities posed by deep economic ties between the U.S. and China, specifically. At least how it's been used in the last couple of years. So some describe de-risking as taking whatever economic steps a country deems appropriate to diversify supply chains, reduce excessive dependency on Chinese supply chains, and resist what they call economic coercion. So the term speaks to measures Washington is implementing in consultation with allies and partners that seek to combat these efforts by China, or efforts that they see as leveraging foreign intellectual property and capital, among other schemes, to attain techno-economic dominance. Unlike decoupling, de-risking's cousin, de-risking does not seem to curb Chinese access to less sophisticated U.S. technology. Artie, that's a really well-thought-out answer. Thank I, you. I, I spent I, time on that. I laud you for that. Actually, it's not that. It's doing exactly what you've been doing, but calling it a different name. So investing wherever you want to, but saying we're doing it for de-risking. Yeah, we haven't done the UN word of the day in a while, but I'm starting to get the sense that a lot of the buzzwords seem to have the same I meaning. feel like we're in a post-COVID reanimation, re-emergence of buzzwords. I feel like I'm in a loop where every word means the same thing. 
The buzzwords are back. Before. If you have any names, by the way, send them into trade.splaining at gmail.com. Yeah. Send us in your favorite ones, just as Rob said, and we might read them out. Smash that subscribe button. Yeah. We're not on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. So finally, Artie, we have This Week in Local News. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or really probably anywhere else. Or listen to planning. We don't have a lot of time for this segment, but I do think there's a very important thing, the menace that's been presented by nature lately. Menaces. We've got the Asian wasp. We've got the attack cows from last week. <laughs> there's the snapping turtle. Take your finger off. There are beavers out there. Turtles. Multiple beavers called beavers, or is it just beaver? Try making soup out of those turtles. <laughs> but now we've got something that's lurking uh, in Swiss rivers. This is the giant carp. So carp are eaten. They're eaten by birds and other fish and all sorts of good things. Back where I grew up, they were eaten by <laughs> big fat forks. We used to poke them and take them out of the river. But once they get to a certain size... Who are you, they, Poseidon? Yeah, a little bit. You're walking yeah, around with forks at the locks. in the river? No, Lake Wingra where, at the lock. Would you grow up in Scottish Highlands? There's a carp. We're not talking about salmon. So... They eat like milk cartons. That's exactly what they eat, garbage. Yeah. So they have a lot in common with you. So, they eat garbage. So they you're the one size. who's ordering they Domino's. Said, no, they said they get to two meters. I'm one meter 79 myself. So they get to two meters. You're probably getting closer to two meters. They're over 90 kilos. So that's over 200 pounds. This is a big fish. And so people are out there finding them with like Doppler radar. I don't know, some kind of special radar. That's <laughs> controversial, apparently. And they say they're eating them. So they're ending up on people's plates. So what I would say is... They're eating the radars. For those of you around Geneva, when you think you're getting filet de perche, I think you're getting a big fat so, chunk of carp. So carpe diem. So in those shallow rivers, you think you're walking, maybe you hit something, maybe you think it's like a mattress. Could be a carp or a carpet. So I would say avoid the fields where the cows are, avoid places where wasps fly, Steer clear of the turtles. Don't cuddle those ones, especially. I almost want to take my chances with the beavers again. It's the least bad. <laughs> it's the least bad of all these options you've presented these last couple of weeks. So, folks, if you're planning to visit Switzerland, I would say bring protective gear. Yeah, or a sword, flamethrower, <laughs> stab vest, everything. RPG. Bring it all. And air conditioning. <laughs> folks, that wraps up episode 52, brought to you by Tellurium. The mineral which composes, I think, roughly 90% of Jordan Peterson. The other 10%? Bitterness. <laughs> the bygone era of digital Wild West. And, of course, Switzerland's giant, enormous carp. We also want to thank Anne Catherine Zotz and Carolyn Forrester of the White Label Project for talking to us about their journey as entrepreneurs and, of course, their love for... We also want to thank our executive producer, Michelle Ogin and Valentina Saponara for highlighting the vibe shift, as well as helping in produce this and every TS episode. And this may be the last episode for Valentina as our editor. That's true. We have some very sad news that Valentina may be leaving us to go on the bigger and better things, but she will always be in our hearts as the silent editor who did not want to come on to the podcast. So people actually don't know if she really exists. She we may also, be AI. And I just want to let you know, don't send her your resume for at least two weeks. Yeah, she has a non-compete clause <laughs> yes, in her exactly. contract. Please also don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already to make sure you catch our next episode coming up very soon. Sooner than the last two that were this summer. <laughs> you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get really your Really anywhere. Don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Five stars. We do read all of them, so please be gentle. You can also follow us on X, the app formerly known as Twitter, at Tradesplaining, or on Instagram at Trade.Splaining, or email us your questions, comments, the old-fashioned way at Trade.Splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's Trade.splaining at gmail.com. And remember, folks, Angela Merkel. <laughs> Listen responsibly. Yavol. <laughs> <laughs>